turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. <clears throat> We're going to read the whole chapter today. Am I on? Try again. No. No? No difference? Wow. Let me try again see what's going on. It says I'm on. Am I on? I'm on now? Okay. Daniel chapter 6. We're going to read uh, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 28. This morning... Hear the word of the Lord. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. They could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. No error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king, Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed and according to the law of the Medes and the Persians which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he has done previously. These men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you... Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace, spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. 
Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. And they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall never come to an end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do give you thanks that you are indeed uh, the God of the heavens as well as the God who rules over all the kings of this earth. We thank you that you have put within your hands all things, all people, all animals, all events, all circumstances. There's nothing that is not ordered by your decree. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would continue to submit ourselves to your holy wisdom and, and your great power, uh, to your right sovereignty over our lives and over all things. We pray that even as we read your word, Lord, that you would help us to submit to it, that it would become a part of who we are as your people, that we would be a people of your word, a people who honor the emperor and who fear the king. Lord, we pray that you would give us more of your spirit to comprehend, more of your spirit to interpret, more of your spirit to apply all of these things that you've laid before us this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 1561, Catherine de' Medici, uh, the queen mother of France, had called a theological conference together to try to bring some peace between the Catholics and the Protestant Huguenots in her realm. Technically, her son, King Charles IX, was the king at this time, but he was only 11 years old. So he, she was basically the queen mother who was really ruling in his stead. So she had called this conference at a, uh, a convent, and the, the conference became known as the Colloquy of Poissy, if I'm pronouncing that even close, P-O-I-S-S-Y. It's a very famous conference. On the Protestant side, John Calvin's co-laborer and eventual successor, Theodore Beza, had been called to speak on behalf of the Huguenots to defend uh, this new doctrine compared to the Catholic teachings at that time. And from the very beginning, they treated him as if he were a heretic or a prisoner, if you will, making him stand behind the bar, behind this railing, far away from the king and queen, far away from the Catholic bishops, as if he were on trial himself, when in fact it was just a 
mutually agreeable conference to try to work out some of these details, supposedly. Long story short, uh, he realizes that his, his situation is somewhat precarious, but nevertheless is very glad for the opportunity to come before the king and queen and to explain the true gospel of Christ to them. And so before he even begins to open his mouth and to, to give his testimony, he asks for permission, if you will, uh, to pray on behalf of the conference. And he gets down on his knees in front of them all and prays probably the most heartfelt, fervent prayer they had ever heard, uh, both on behalf of his own sin and his own desire to see God's name magnified throughout the land, as well as a blessing upon the king and the reign of these French rulers. And uh, his prayer apparently was so moving to the queen herself that she got down on her knees as she listened to him pray, which was unheard of at the time. Even the Catholic bishops stood up and uncovered their heads so that they could also be a part of this prayer, even though they were his sworn enemies, if you will. It's amazing what prayer can do. It gave him an opportunity to, to speak his, his peace in regards to the Protestant understanding of the doctrine of the gospel, and also, as a result, uh, in that enabled the Huguenots to worship freely in the land of France, at least for a period of time as a result of this conference and, and uh, the fruit that came from it. It's interesting, um, a few years later, the wife of the king of Navarre, now Navarre, you'll have to forgive me, but Navarre is a small portion that would later be engulfed by France, okay? But basically the king of Navarre becomes sort of a prince to the, to the rulers of France. So it's still a very important person and the wife of this king of Navarre became very upset with Theodore Beza, the same guy I just mentioned, because all of the Protestant Huguenots stopped praying for her husband. And it bothered her because she was a believer and didn't understand why wouldn't they pray for my husband anymore. But basically, she had heard in the camps where the Huguenots were getting ready to fight some of their battles that they would pray for other princes, but they would not pray for him. And as a result, she began to ask Theodore about this. And Theodore explained to her the reason why they stopped praying for him is because he's continued to become an enemy to the Huguenots. That at first they prayed for him gladly. Then when he became more entrenched in his views, they prayed for him somewhat reluctantly. But now that he's turned entirely toward the Catholics and wanting to squash the Huguenot church, Bayes explained that they didn't have the heart to pray for the king anymore without calling down curses upon his head. And so they refused to pray at all because they didn't want to do that to their king. And uh, Theodore Beza then explains to her, uh, he says, well, I myself have not quite given up on your husband just yet. And so I continued to pray for him. And she gave thanks that he was still willing to pray for him. And I think, it, again, because she understood something that her husband did not, James chapter 5, verse 16, that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. And she wanted this righteous man to be praying for her husband. You would think it would be the same way for King Darius the Mede, would also want Daniel the righteous man to be praying for him at all times and all places, but as you know from last week, he had foolishly signed this decree that his uh, advisors had manipulated him into, stating in the decree that if anyone would make a petition to any god or man within a period of 30 days except to the king, that person should be cast into the lion's den. And we saw that uh, as soon as that decree was passed, Daniel went ahead and did what he always did. He just went up into his room and he prayed three times that day, as was his 
custom. And last week we discussed a little bit about the contents of that prayer based upon another prayer that we find later on in Daniel chapter 9 in which certainly he is praying for mercy on behalf of the Jews against their captors, that they would find favor in their sight, that eventually they'd be allowed to return home. Again, this is the 70th year of exile. They're anticipating being able to go home, and yet these types of things are happening. These decrees are still being passed against them. But that's not the only thing Daniel would have prayed for. He had learned from Jeremiah, the prophet, uh, that they should be praying for their return home, but he had also learned from Jeremiah they should be praying on behalf of the city itself, both for Babylon, for Susa, and for all the other cities and, and countries, if you will, that the exiles found themselves in. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7, the Jews are exhorted very plainly to seek the welfare of the city in which they were exiles and to pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, Israel would find her own welfare. Now, in ancient times, if you wanted to promote the welfare of a particular town, a city, country, empire, what's the thing you're going to pray for more than anything else? The leaders of those particular provinces and realms. Clearly, Daniel would have been praying for the king himself as well, especially given the fact that likely he was his friend already and was being promoted to second in all the kingdom. Now, this isn't anything new, uh, praying for kings and queens and princes and all sorts of other leaders in high position. If you go throughout the Old Testament, you'll see this is a very recurring pattern. Um, if you go back to the time of Abraham, if you remember, Abraham was for a time in the land of the Philistines and was praying for the king of Abimelech, uh, basically to, that he would be healed. He's, he's praying for him, and certainly we saw it, find the same thing. Jacob, when he is in exile in the land of Egypt, he actually prays a blessing upon the Pharaoh himself. Very common. Even Moses, surprisingly, prays for the later Pharaoh who becomes the sworn enemy of Israel. Every single time the Pharaoh asks him to pray to remove the plagues from the land, Moses willingly prays for him to remove that misery. We find later on in the history of Israel as well, the prophets were continually praying not just for the good kings and queens of Israel and of Judah, but also for the most wicked ones. We find on at least two occasions both the two most wicked men at that time, we think of Jeroboam, we think of Ahab, both of them specifically request the prophets to pray for them, and they oblige. They pray for them both. And we see that on and on uh, throughout the Old Testament. Strangely enough, it was not the kings of Israel and Judah that had restored the, the temple of God, that had allowed the people to return back to their homeland, but instead it was these Persian kings, Cyrus and Darius, who are actually promoting the worship of God in their land. We see this very clearly in Ezra chapter 6. Uh, two decrees were passed, one by the first king, another by the second, in which God's people were to return to their own land and to rebuild the temple, and that the kings themselves of these, these pagan kings were going to give them all the treasure that they would need to do it and all the provisions that they would need in order to perform the sacrifices and give them a, a decree of peace that they could go without being afraid of marauders or anyone else attacking them. Why? Why would they do all of this for them? Ultimately, so that, according to Ezra 6, they would offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the king and his sons. Over and over again, we see kings and queens throughout history and certainly throughout Scripture asking for God's people to pray for them. 
it's not against God's will to pray for pagans, even to pray for those that are wicked and those who are in opposition to us in every possible way. King Darius himself would have been on Daniel's regular prayer list. Of course, when he prayed his three times a day. And you would think that Darius the king would have seen that as a clear sign of his obedience, a clear sign of his support for the realm of the king himself. But as again, as you know, the antagonist had tried to spin his praying, even on behalf of the king, as some sort of defiance unto the king. The very fact that he's not willing to abide by this one law makes him a rebel to the kingdom itself. Of course, uh, these detractors, these enemies of Daniel are, are not so naive as to think that they can just immediately try to turn the king's heart against Daniel. Instead, they remind him, if you will, of this decree that he has passed, that yes, did you indeed pass this injunction saying that people cannot pray in this way? And of course, immediately the king admitted that that was the case, that he was intending on honoring the word that he had given in, in accordance with the laws of the birds and the, Pe of the Medes and the Persians. And as soon as, as he verifies that he will, in fact, uphold this, then they tell him, by the way, it's Daniel. By the way, it's that Jew that, 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 that was brought over here during the time of the captivity. So they bring their accusation against him, saying that he had rebelliously, basically, and unlawfully prayed three times a day. Again, this wouldn't really bother the king whatsoever, especially given the fact that Daniel probably had been praying for him in front of him, and he had seen it on numerous occasions, seeing his great support for his kingdom. But nevertheless, there was this pesky little law that he had signed. As a result, they were looking to challenge Darius's reign. They were wanting to elevate themselves at the king's expense by putting him in this particular bind. So we're told in verse 14 that when Darius heard these words, he was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, laboring until sunset, trying to rescue him. Now, we're not told exactly what Darius tried to do, what was, what was his method of trying to overturn this law, but more than likely it would have started by going to the Hall of Records to read the decree that he had signed probably without reading the first time and going to his scholars and going to his wise men, you know, those guys that we kept making fun of before, what can I do? How can I get myself out of this? And no matter what he did, there didn't seem to be a way of escape. But was that really the case? Because if you think about it, we see in another book in the Old Testament, the book of Esther, King Ahasuerus makes a decree that he later comes to regret as well. What does he do? Well, he makes another decree that sort of overturns the other one without officially overturning it, just giving the Jews the chance to fight on their own behalf in order to protect themselves from that first decree that had been signed saying that anyone could go and kill all these Jews, right? And so there was a way out. There was a loophole, if you will. Couldn't Darius just do something similar? Likely he could, but for one reason or another, either he doesn't know how to do it or he doesn't seem to have enough guts to do it or what have you. Uh, likely, again, if you read in the context of history here, this seems to be his first year in his reign. He's new to the job, if you will and uh, doesn't have the clout that perhaps Ahasuerus had already had at that point in his reign. And as a result, he doesn't know all the tricks of the trade yet, doesn't have enough uh, clout, again, if you will, to 
to be able to overturn this. Again, he could have just refused to keep the decree. He is the king, right? He can sort of do what he wants to say, you know, forget the laws and the means and the Persians. I'm, I'm the king right now, so I can do what I want. But what do you think would happen if he did that? I imagine all of these advisors and these satraps are all of a sudden taking off their footwear and holding up their flip-flops and saying, look, he's a flip-flopper, he's a flip-flopper. You've heard this before, right? <laughs> Typical politicians, right? And basically by pointing out the fact that he can't even keep his own laws, why should we trust him? Why should we support his reign? Why should we do what he says? It would have undermined his authority grievously, and he would never be able to overcome uh, this setback, if you will. And so, basically, it comes down to this. Does he allow Daniel to go free, or does he make sure that his own kingdom is safe and secure? He's, he's put in a, a very particular decision here. And obviously, as you know, he chooses himself rather than Daniel. Rather than doing what is right, he does what he needs to do to save face. Now, you, you know this is very common today as well as it was in ancient times. But you think about it even in the New Testament, in the passage we read earlier when David was reading from Matthew chapter 27. If you remember, Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, right? Even his own wife said, stay away from this guy. In a dream, I've heard about this, right? Uh, but at least on a couple of occasions, he tells Christ, I can't find any guilt in this man. No reason to put him to death. Certainly no reason to crucify him. But each time he began to try to get out of it, the crowd cried all the louder. And it got to the point where even he was like, okay, I'll, I'll give you some free prisoners. You can free whoever you want. And of course, he's expecting them to free Jesus. But instead, they want to free the insurrectionist, the rebel, the murderer, the, the whatever else, Barabbas. And so he has to go along with their will. He later offers to basically punish Jesus without crucifying him. And yet they don't want that either. They want to go all the way. And uh, clearly he still could have gotten out of it. He could have said, no, I'm not doing this. He could have stood up for righteousness. He could have stood up for justice. So what is the determining point? What makes him go ahead and turn Jesus over to the executioner? It's when the crowd makes him make a choice. In the Gospel of John, if you remember, the crowd begins to cry out, saying to him that he who proclaims himself to be a king is no friend of Caesar's, and if you allow this man to go, you're no friend of Caesar's. Basically, your job itself is in jeopardy if you don't do what we say. And if you know a little bit of history, Pilate himself had already gotten in trouble previously with the Jews, and he's doing anything he can to make sure that there's peace in his realm so that he himself, his head is not on the chopping block. So as a result, he washes his hands of it, sits down at the judgment seat, and determines that he should be crucified. It's the exact same thing. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Is exactly what they say. And so he, out of fear, does exactly what they want. In both cases, these heads of state normally would have defended probably the innocent within their realm, but in these particular situations, not so much because, again, it's coming down to their own livelihood and they're not willing to put that at stake. Should this not be one of the primary reasons that we ought to be praying for the leaders of our state? knowing how easily 
they can be put in these types of situations in which instead of doing righteousness and justice, they're willing to throw anyone under the bus in order to save their own skin. We know that every politician is tempted by this, not to be a man or woman of integrity, but rather to let the dollar change their mind, to let their own safety and security within their positions to make them change their minds. I, I, I honestly, I, I can't even imagine, I'm so glad that I don't have to, what happens behind closed doors in D.C. on any given day? How many backroom deals are there in which some person is probably being bribed on one hand, being blackmailed on another, and then the pork belly just rolls? And who knows who's thrown under the bus as a result? How many times? So we, we see it at the local level, but I can't even imagine at the national level how often this happens. This should make us want to pray for our leaders every day. It's amazing what some of them are willing to do. But indeed, the Apostle Paul tells us, as David had mentioned earlier in his prayer in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says that we ought to be praying for all kinds of people, for kings, those who are in high positions, why? That we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, because we know that in a minute, these same people that seem to be friends to the church all of a sudden become an enemy because of some backroom dealing that we're not aware of. How quickly that can change. That's exactly what's happening here. Daniel, who was a friend of the king, now becomes his enemy, all because the king now is on shaky ground. And as a result, instead of being promoted to the highest position of land, he's thrown down into the lowest pit with the, the lions. Verse 16, the king commands his men reluctantly to apprehend Daniel. They throw him in the pit. And just as the stone is about to close over the mouth of the den, the king says this to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. There's some debate uh, amongst the commentators of whether this is meant to be in a subjunctive mood or, or whether this is a declarative. In other words, is he wishing for this or is he declaring that this will be? And some of the um, more conservative scholars, perhaps you could say, or, or those who actually believe that maybe the king actually has some faith here, is declaring this because it's written in a declarative mood. That He's saying, your God will save you. He will deliver you, even though I can't. Your God will. And twice, in fact, in the ESV, it says he declares, and then he puts it in the question mark, which seems kind of strange. It seems like they're trying to go both ways with this. But he's, in some way or another, wishing, hoping, declaring that God will indeed save Daniel. And just as the stone was put in place, then the king seals the, the door with his own signet ring as well as with the signet rings of his lords. And, um, and away goes Daniel. Why seal the stone at all? Why seal the, the tomb, if you will? <laughs> Basically, in this particular case, uh, anybody could come by, maybe throw him a rope, let him out. Maybe throw some meat down to the lions so that uh, they're not quite so hungry. Maybe they'll leave Daniel alone, if you will. And so they put the stone in place to ensure that the lions will indeed have a tasty meal that day. 
And from that moment on, strangely enough, at least probably for the next 12 hours, we don't hear a word from Daniel. Not a peep. Nothing is said of what actually takes place inside during this time. Instead of telling us about what's going on in the pit, the narrator takes us to the palace and tells us what's going on with the king. Why? Primarily, just as it was in the case of Daniel chapter 4, with King Nebuchadnezzar losing his mind and turning into a beast, if you will, uh, roaming around and eating grass in the field, etc., etc. If you're, if you're paying attention to the book of Daniel, you begin to see it's really not about Daniel. This book is not about the prophet, but it's about God's dealing with kings. Why? He wants to assure those who are in the realm of these kings that are often pagan and often very wicked men that God is still working on them. God is still doing something in the palace that you're not aware of. Even you know that they're backroom court dealings, but is God there? Is God doing something? And in this case, clearly, he is. Because we see that Darius, instead of talking about, you know, what, how's Daniel dealing with these lines right now? Instead, it's all about the palace. You're supposed to feel really sad for this king. I mean, he's, he's just under so much turmoil. We don't hear anything about Daniel. <laughs> we hear about the king. That night, he, he didn't ask for his, his dramatic troupe to perform for him. That particular night, he didn't ask for his court musicians to play for him. He didn't ask for his cook to make him a lavish meal. He says he fasted the whole night. Probably he would have even be tempted to pray, except for the fact that he may have been thrown into prison breaking his own law, because he had no power, apparently. But we see he, he fasted, and he could not sleep the whole night, and then the very peep of day, he runs to the den, hoping, wishing against hope, if you will. This God of Daniel's will indeed save him and deliver him from the lions. And he asked, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And through the rock you can hear this voice, O king, live forever. <laughs> Again, we're not told what happened. All we have is a very terse reply from Daniel who basically says, well, God sent his angel to shut the mouth of the lions. That's pretty much all we got. And so I'm unharmed. Woo! <laughs> That's it. We don't hear anything else other than that. It, it's interesting, though, if you look at the paintings. There have been a number of biblical paintings, if you will, of this particular scene throughout history. And most of them get it tremendously wrong, every possible way. Simply because they paint Daniel as this young, strong guy who looks like he's about to take on a lion. But they've forgotten to actually read the text of Daniel very carefully because at this time... Daniel is probably an octogenarian. In other words, that means he's 80 years old or higher. He's an old man. There's one particular painter uh, who painted the 19th century, Britain Riviera, who does a good job of, of, of demonstrating the actual account here. And he, he portrays Daniel as a very old man, and he's got his hands still tied behind his back, and he's not even looking at the lines. He's looking up at the the first sign of light that appears, and he's just faithful, just trusting God. He's not trying to fight lions. He's not, he's not even looking at the lions. He doesn't care about the lions. 
but he knows that God is going to protect him and is protecting him throughout the night. Again, we're not told if the angel spoke to Daniel throughout the night. Perhaps he did. Don't know. Doesn't say. Maybe, as some commentators said, Daniel used one of the lines as a pillow. Maybe, but doesn't say. Again, we have so little detail here in that regard. Again, instead, the narrator focuses on the palace of the king, who has a pillow but can't seem to use it because he's so unnerved by this whole thing. The one commonality that we have between the palace and the pit is simply this. Both the king and the lions were fasting that night. <laughs> one willingly, the other one's against their will, apparently, when the angel shuts their mouths. But Daniel explains in verse 21 that the angel had shut their mouths because he was found blameless before the Lord and also before the king so that there wasn't even a, a scratch on him. Very similar to, if you remember, in Daniel chapter 3, I think it is, when the three friends are thrown into the fiery pit and not a single hair on their head was singed, right? In the same way here, there's not a single scratch upon Daniel's body. And he says it, it's primarily because he's blameless, innocent. He's not done anything wrong to the king. I think this statement is mainly primarily for the king's benefits. He would learn something from this in terms of justice. But let's not come to the conclusion in any way by reading this passage in isolation to think that anyone who's actually blameless will always be delivered from the lions or will always be delivered out of persecution, will always be delivered from their trials. We know that's not the case, even though Hebrews 11 points out that there are indeed many who by faith did shut the mouths of lions, others who quenched the fury of the flames and even escaped the edge of the sword. Nevertheless, if you keep reading toward the end of that passage in Hebrews 11, it makes it very plain that many others by their faith were tortured to death. By that same faith, were stoned to death. Others were killed by the sword. Others were sawn in two. That doesn't sound very nice. But by faith, they endured it until the end, Scripture reads. I think I had shared with you last week that in 1572, which is 10 years after this colloquy of Poissy, Theodore Beza, who had defended the Protestants in France, uh, before that same queen, Catherine de' Medici, who had bowed down on her knees hearing his prayer, later signs the edict to kill all the Huguenots in France. Between 10 and 30,000 Protestant believers are slaughtered because she changed her mind. One who had given so much to Theodore Beza, changed her mind. We don't know why. She wanted peace in her land, and the, the Protestants were going to be the sacrifice in order to ensure that that happened. So why in this particular case, then, was Daniel's life spared? Again, I submit to you that perhaps it's to confirm and strengthen the faith of the king himself. Again, this seems to be primarily about the king and not about Daniel. As King Nebuchadnezzar had been delivered from his own experience and had seen the deliverance of God's people on a number of occasions. Now King Darius is also visibly moved when he sees how God has delivered his son, Daniel. And I imagine whatever faith he had prior, whether it was just a, a hope or whether it was a declaration, certainly it's confirmed now. He has come to believe that this God is the God of heaven who can preserve someone even from the pit of the lions, especially when the moment later when they get the families of the enemies and throw them in, the lions immediately rip their flesh to shreds. 
and break their bones in pieces. He knows something is happening here that doesn't happen with his gods, but is happening because of the God of heaven. We see this, verses 25 through 27. The king makes this counter edict, which he could have done a long time ago, but now he decides to do it. And instead of telling people not to pray to any god or man but to him alone, he now tells everyone in his realm, he says, all peoples, all nations, all languages, he tells them, tremble and fear the God of Daniel. That's his exhortation. That's his law. Tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Why? Because he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers, he rescues, he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And he who saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Don't you see this book is not really just an interesting collection of Sunday school stories. Although it is that. Obviously one of the fan favorites for most Sunday school children when they get to Daniel in the lion's den. Who can't help but love Daniel in the lion's den. But it's a continual proof text as well to show that God can and does move in the heart of kings. He did it back then. He does it today. He hasn't changed, you see. And it's interesting because in that same passage, again, that we, we considered earlier, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is exhorting his people to pray for the leaders of government. He says, we're to do this on the one hand in order that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. But he provides a second reason why we should pray for them. In verse 3 of that same passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there Paul says, For this reason, for this is good and pleasing in the sight of God who desires all kinds of people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What is he saying there? We pray for kings and those in the leadership, not just so that we can live quiet and godly lives, but for their sake, that they might be saved. And what would happen to a realm in which your leaders are saved? I think we have bought way too much into CNN and Fox News and all the others. It just becomes this constant bitter, we hate that guy and you hate our guy and whatever else. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture says pray for your leaders. Who knows? God might actually save them. And then what would happen? Who knows? (coughs) Tremendous difference, surely. What we're seeing throughout the book of Daniel over and over again is this, this idea that God can do anything. But do you really believe that? Do you really believe that God can save President Biden? Maybe you already believe he has. Do you believe he can really save all the Supreme Court justices? Do you really believe that he can save all of those other politicians that we know too much about in their personal lives? Can God save them? Can God change their hearts? Or do we just accept the fact that this life is horrible? This political life is never going to change. I can tell you that believers many years before us in various countries around the world firmly believe that God could change their hearts and pray for them accordingly. I think we're, in our culture, just taught to hate the ones we don't like. And we stop praying for them. But we're told very plainly in the book of Revelation that Jesus Christ is the ruler over all the kings of earth. And if he's the ruler over them, and he is, what can he do with those kings, queens, and princes, and, and the like? 
Another reason to pray regularly for our leaders in government is simply so that we'll long for the actual king to come. The true king, the eternal king, the king of kings. As we're praying for them, and, and we're reluctantly praying for them, it should lead us to pray for the one that we're actually really excited to come. And continue to pray in that way as well, to pray to, to prepare ourselves for his kingdom to come. There are a number of details in this chapter that foreshadow the king of kings coming. I think you can probably see many of them, both in his humiliation as well as his glory. But if you think about it, like Daniel, Jesus was arrested while in prayer. Notice that correlation? Like Daniel, his enemies had to come up with a false accusation because they couldn't find anything wrong that he had done. They're trying to turn the government leaders against them because they couldn't find anything that he had done wrong. Like Daniel, Jesus was betrayed by a government leader who chose self-preservation over justice. Like Daniel, Jesus was condemned to die. His body was placed in a sealed tomb. And like Daniel, angels came to the aid of Jesus. Am I saying that last part right? They did come to his aid, but only after he had died. When they rolled the stone away to show that he had been resurrected from the dead. But did they come and deliver him from death? No. In fact, if you remember when, when Peter tries to, or in fact he does cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, if you remember, Jesus put away the sword. Do you not realize at any moment, I can call down a myriad of angels to come to my aid, and yet he chooses not to. Why? Because he wants to die. It's his Father's will that he would die, that he would be that perfect sacrifice for sin, because we are not like Daniel. <laughs> we are not as godly as Daniel, that we can't, no one can find anything wrong with us, but we know if we stand before the king today, we would be condemned for our sin if it were not for the blood of Jesus Christ. He's our only hope. He purposely endures the full wrath of God that we might not have to. He purposely on the cross begins to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does he say that? Because God actually forsakes him so that he wouldn't have to forsake us. And it's interesting, if you read the rest of that passage that's found in Psalm 22, by the way, if you read the rest of the passage in Psalm 22, the language that David uses there is very reminiscent of what's taking place in this book of Daniel. For there, the way he describes his enemies, his roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. Of course, God delivers him out of that particular scene, but as he continues to describe the situation, it sounds much more like Christ. You lay me in the dust of death, and they pierce my hands and my feet. Clearly, hundreds of years, thousands, Years prior, God had already laid out exactly how Jesus would die to save his people from their sins. And instead of saving him from the mouth of the lions, he wants him to be put to death by his enemies in order to endure the wrath of God that we might be saved. He does this, if you think of Daniel in the lion's den, you know, praying, you know, God deliver me from this situation. Jesus prays that same type of prayer on the cross, you know, my God, my God, why, why are you forsaking me? God doesn't answer his prayer for this very reason, so that 
When we as sinners call upon the name of the Lord to forgive us of our sins, He hears us. He listens to us, forgives us of all of our sin because of Christ's righteousness, because of Christ's blood upon the cross. All very unique expressions that are in Daniel certainly are all foreshadowing what's to come. It's interesting, even in, even in the, uh, the book of Isaiah, later describing sort of the glory that is still yet to come, describes uh, the, the, the lion laying down with the lamb, the children playing in their midst, a time in which there is no more fear of, of death. There's no more fear of wrong and injustice. There's no more fear of, of war. All of this takes place when God comes into his own as his rightful king. Certainly a future reality that we should be praying for, right? Lord, come quickly. It was about 14 years prior to that St. Bartholomew Day massacre in 1558, when I was telling you 10 to 30,000 people were killed, that was one of the most courageous moments in the life of the Huguenots, the Protestant believers in, in France. For in 1558, in the spring, I think it was in May, there was a, uh, a flash mob that broke out right across from the Louvre in Paris. And on this particular day, two men began to sing one of the Psalms in French, which was illegal, by the way. You couldn't sing God's praise in your own language. You could only sing in Latin. And even then, it had to be the clergy who did it. You couldn't do it yourself. It was the king's way of making sure that the Huguenot faith didn't spread. And as a way, even though they honored their king as much as they could, when he made stupid laws like that, all of a sudden the people said, enough's enough. They weren't even allowed to sing in private. That's how bad this law was. Again, you think, no king would ever say you can't pray or you can't sing or you can't read the Bible. They do it all the time. In this particular case, what happened, two men began to sing the song right in the middle of the city, right around the crowds. And then a few people joined in. And you'll find that uh, ladies and gentlemen, like the, the proper people, joined in as well. As the students and the soldiers, all of a sudden you had about 50, 100 people all singing psalms. And then it ended. But then the next day it happened again. And then the next day. And on the third day, there were 6,000 people in the center of Paris singing psalms in French at the top of their lungs. Disregarding the law of the king. This was one of the reasons that later the Catholic bishops and the kings began to turn against them. Most of those people that sang in the court that day in the plaza that day were probably killed for their faith. But eventually, before Theodore Beza dies, the freedom of the Huguenots finally have some freedom to worship that has continued to this day. But it makes you wonder, praying courageously, praying faithfully. We're to honor the king, we're to pray for the king, but we're to fear the Lord. That's the distinguishing difference I think you see in Daniel. I think it's the distinguishing difference you see in the French Huguenots and throughout all the believers throughout uh, history in the church and elsewhere. We find believers honor the emperor, but they fear the Lord. Amen? Let's pray together.
Father, we do come before you. You are our rightful King and Lord. We bow our knees before you, acknowledging that you alone are our Lord and our God. We pray, Father, as we meditate upon this passage, that you would continue to, to, to humble us in our hearts toward the leaders above us, uh, that we would desire their welfare, that we would desire to see that they grow in wisdom and that they would know the, the men and women that there are their counselors, they would be able to see clearly whether that is good or, or, or bad counsel that they're receiving. We, we pray, Father, that you would indeed move in their hearts and, and move it like a stream of water toward your holy purposes, Lord. We pray for uh, the town in which we live, uh, the state and the country we reside in. We pray, Father, that you would bring forth a new reformation. Amen. Lord, bring a revival to your church. Bring godliness and righteousness back to our land in which the law of God, not just the laws of men, are known. Restore the the heart for singing, we would once again sing to our Lord and our God, we pray in Jesus' name.